there's an, an Essex outlet store there, and I made an order with them about six weeks ago, and it hasn't turned up, so I'm going to go in the store and start showering the people. <laughs> well, hopefully the podcast will get you in the mood. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think it you gets me in the mood. <clears throat> okay. Hello, and welcome to Football Unfocused, the podcast featuring two men who have known each other a very long time, um, one of whom is uh, self-important and arrogant enough to think that anyone wants to hear his point of view, and the other one is a little bit quieter and knows a little bit less about football, <laughs> theoretically. Which one are you, Matt, do you, do you think? Um, get, do you want to come back to me on that one? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll maybe give it this episode and then allow. Uh, we'll, we'll introduce some sort of Twitter poll at the end of it and see if anyone's got a point of view. Right, no messing around, Matt. Matt. How do you dry your clothes? <laughs> you are so. You, the thing is, just before we started this episode, you waved some. As I, I said, there were the scrawlings of a five-year-old in front of me, and going, "I've got some questions here." Stop procrastinating. How do you dry your clothes? Uh, just uh, the the regular way. <laughs> What's the regular way? That's a suspicious answer. I know. Well, I, I, I think you're saying a high. Well, if I if. I, <laughs> So if I want my if I want a soft towel, I'll um I'll stick it in the tumble dryer. You know we got and then but if 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 I'm not that fussed if it's some gym kit then I'll um stick on the clothes horse. And is the clothes horse indoors or outdoors? Yeah, it's all indoors. It's an indoor flat. <laughs> Do you have a balcony? No. <laughs> no, I should invite you around one day. Actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've only lived there about five years. Second question, Matt. What's your favourite takeaway? Uh, oh, probably, probably, probably like um, donut time. Um, like you get a box of six donuts. <sighs> <laughs> what are you? Oh, it, this isn't a video. This isn't a video podcast. You can't rub your head and just sort of expect people. No, but they'll have heard the side. They'll have heard the side. So you've got, you've got, you, you, you're chippy. You've got your Chinese. You've got your Indian. You've got everything else that is available these days. Korean, <laughs> chicken shop, a lot. Vietnamese, Thai, and you choose donuts. <laughs> yeah. That's your well, answer. Yeah, well, answer. next question. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I know you're a vegan, but sure, you can have an Indian. Indian is ideal for a vegan. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I'll, I'll have an Indian as well. You know. I like an Indian as much as the next man. <laughs> But I prefer a donut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why do I bother? <laughs> right. What are we talking about today, Matt? Oh, in the world of football. Oh. You, the thing is, you are getting more and more obtuse with the way. I, I don't know if that is quite the correct word, but you, you, you. Well, it's the word that got Andy, um, Andy, what's his face? from the Shawshank Redemption in massive trouble with the warden oh, did... because he called him obtuse. Andy Dufresne, <laughs> uh, he called the warden obtuse and that gave that ended uh, that uh, resulted in him getting a couple of weeks in um, in solitary confinement. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine if that was the relationship between me and you, that's where, I'll... <laughs> that's where you'd have In so said... many ways, yeah. I am the warden <laughs> and you are Andy Dufresne. Um, but... You said to me, oh, fuck, I've got to find the text. She just said to me, we're talking about the biggest footballing errors. 
And I said, yeah. okay, are we talking refereeing errors or are we talking sort of, you know, strategic type errors? And you didn't reply. And so I texted you the no. next day and I said, oh, so just to clarify, do I, what, what should I sort of be researching? And then you, I mean, I won't repeat it word for word, but basically you just sort of said, don't worry about doing research. <laughs> yeah. Seeing as you're being uh, bashful, Matthew, let me, uh, let me find uh, said message and see what my actual response was. Uh, oh, yeah, that's it. You never add anything, research or no research, you thunder cunt. So does that mean you've, you, you're here with uh, your pants down, you know? You've turned up at school without having done your homework. <laughs> and the teachers work, work, slowly working their way around the classroom and they're coming to you. They can see you, you know, looking shifty on the end of the road. I remember when I was, um, did I tell you about that time when I was a teacher and I um, I, uh, I took all the kids. For the purposes of the tape, Matthew was inexplicably <laughs> a secondary school teacher for, was it about three or four years Yeah, now? I slipped through the net. And um, yeah. and so and I took a a class of books home um, to Mark, and then um and then on the way back the next day to to hand them out, I uh, I left them on the bus and uh, this massive and so I had to like just tell the kids that that I just handed out pieces of paper and said the dog ate it. yeah the dog ate it. yeah and it was when I was training as a teacher so I had to like. Explain to the actual teacher of that class where all the books had gone. <laughs> Did you ever recover the books? Yeah, the bus driver actually got in touch with me. I don't know how she got my number. So they had to show you. You weren't. You oh, yeah, weren't, yeah, uh, no, I did. Well, I think I instigated something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no point stressing about it. And then when. 30 it... pieces of GTSE history <laughs> coursework. <laughs> Yeah, it's my mind. I know. And um, she got in touch with me, uh, the bus driver did. And she said, oh, I've got your books. And um, so when you're on the bus tomorrow morning, I'll, I'll hand them to you. And I said, Oh, so she recognised you. You were a regular uh, passenger yeah, yeah, on yeah. service. And then I got, um, and then, so the next day I picked them up. And then uh, a little while later, I got really drunk and I started messaging the bus driver. <laughs> And I said, oh, I've been naughty again. Shall I do some lines and stuff? No, you didn't. You didn't. I'm assuming this is in your single days, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're learning more and more about you now. You've got some sort of bus driver lost homework fetish. You're a weird, weird man. Well, that's, yeah, that was my ultimate fantasy, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like Gareth from The Office. Two women, sisters. I'm just watching. <laughs> yeah. Good. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So is there any more questions? Or shall we so, start? Well, no, that, wasn't even a question. that was me attempting to turn this onto the subject for the day. And you explaining how you weren't doing any research. Oh, right. Yeah, and then yeah. somehow on to you talking about your, your illustrious teaching career. <laughs> And what a loss to the profession you still are to this day. Yes, so no, you're right. I haven't, I don't, not only do I not really know what we're talking about, but I haven't done any research. So as you would say, I'm sure that won't be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll I'll handle this one, shall I? Want me to crack on? Yeah, yeah, go on. I can't even, I don't even know like what you want to talk. Biggest footballing errors. When I think about it, I think of, Basically, England in a penalty shootout 
that's kind of... It's not really the uh, the angle I was going for, someone missing a penalty. <laughs> I'm thinking more in terms of decisions in football that have, um, for whatever reason, been inexplicable or have led, had long-term consequences. So you can look at it from the point of view of uh, disastrous signings or, dis- or disastrous decisions to sell a player. You can look at it from the point of view of strategic decisions made by a club what has caused the club to enter into a period of decline or what was, you know, or vice versa. Um, and there's a few. I mean, this is the sort of thing you could talk about forever. You could do about 10 episodes or more on this. <clears throat> but just off the top of my head, there's a couple that um, that I think of. And I think possibly, so there's the, the, the two that I want to focus on both refer to that kind of same period that we've actually um, covered a fair bit in our uh, short-lived and glorious podcast career thus far, and that is the early 90s. So that period of time from the um, the end of what was, you know, the traditional football league um, going into the Premier League era, the shiny, exciting new Premier League era. So in the early 90s, you had a – it was a, it, when you look back now, it, it was a real pivotal, pivotal moment where the power, the pendulum of power swung from one side to the other. Liverpool had essentially been dominating English football, well, solidly in the 1980s, you know, except they won seven league titles out of ten in the the, um, 80s. And um, also kind of, you know, late 70s, uh, two European Cups in the late 70s and a load of league titles, even in the 60s, which was actually, when you look back in the 60s, it was a kind of very... Uh, quite a beautifully evenly spread uh, decade in terms of um, trophies in um, the the uh, top, you know, the league championship and the FA Cup. But even then, Liverpool always had a strong side and they were always among the challengers. So you're talking 25, 30 years of being either top dog or very close to being top dog. And they, through a series of catastrophic strategic errors, allowed, um, they created the perfect storm in which they, through that domination, uh, and all of that, that success out of the window and sowed the seeds for what ended up being a 30-year wait to win the title again, which at the time seemed inexplicable, and gave the uh, the momentum to their biggest rivals. And the worst thing is when you look back at it, they did it without even having the slightest clue the damage they were causing at the time. So uh, a lot of this actually stems back to something that, that had nothing to do with Liverpool. Here's a question for you, Matt. Who were the league champions, the reigning league champions, when the Premier League was launched, 92-93 season? Arsenal. No, they actually won it the year before and two years before that. So that's a, that's a good good guess. No. All right. <laughs> no. You want another go? Liverpool. No. I mean, that, that would be too obvious. It was Leeds United. <laughs> was, I'll just stick with Arsenal then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go back to Arsenal, <laughs> even though I'd already said no. Arsenal won it in 89 and 91. And they were right up there at that time. But no, 1992, Leeds United, who had not long been promoted back from the second division and then sort of looked like they'd got back to their former glories and they'd managed to win the league um, with a team that was um, not dissimilar to the, probably the Blackburn Rovers team in 1995, had a couple of real top quality individuals, but were on the whole quite functional side. A lot of traditional kind of, we call um, sort of pre well, I would say values or ways of playing football that would look a little bit um, Burnley style now, but 
but at the time were um, were kind of you know the, the way that everyone most teams were were playing. So they were they were in many ways an unremarkable team, but they did have an exceptionally talented midfield quartet of um, Batty, Strachan, Speed, and McAllister. That's a great midfield, and I think that that had a big part in them winning the league. And they hadn't won the league um, since the uh, early 1970s. So it was, it was a, it was a massive deal, and at the time. Um, that mob from Old Trafford hadn't won the title uh, since I think 1969 or 68. Um, and it looked like, you know, they've always been in terms of fan base, uh, the best supported club in the in the country and one of the best in the world, even during that, that the sort of 30 odd years of, uh, of wilderness. I think they went 27 years, didn't they, without winning the title. Um, and they, that season, Ferguson had been in charge for five years by then. And he was starting to get a real grip on them. They were starting to challenge a lot more. They'd won the first trophy in 1990, but they were still choking. And in that season, they lost the when they lost the title to Leeds. They had a what looked like a bit of an unassailable lead at one stage, and they they did, to be fair to them, have a really an outrageously unfair um, level of fixture congestion towards the end of the season. They had to play something similar to what um, that, funnily enough, they had to do last week as a result of. Um, of the cancelled game a few weeks ago. They had to play about four games in a week and they ended up losing a couple of them. They lost a pivotal game at Upton Park against a pretty average West Ham side. And then beautifully on the last day of the season, they came to Anfield, um, lost 2-0 and blew the chance of winning the title. So Leeds United won the league. A key part, though, in that, that I haven't mentioned thus far in Leeds winning that title was um, halfway through the season... A, man, a mercurial talent um, from a foreign football man, which at that time was almost unheard of, came along by the name of Eric Cantona. And he was he had a reputation for being temperamental, unpredictable, but outrageously talented. Um, and Leeds took a chance on him, and he ended up in that second half of the season being the difference, really. He was the man who, in a tight game, he had that bit of creative genius. He could break a deadlock. He could lay it on a plate for someone else. He could score himself. He, he was, you know, perfectly suited to English football because he had physicality, which at the time, the, the kind of slightly narrow-minded view of the foreign players in English football would have said, oh, they wouldn't be able to take the physical side. Well, he certainly could. In fact, he probably terrified a lot of the uh, the uh, British players, especially over the next few years with the way he conducted himself. Um um, but he, he basically had everything. So they win the league, and then he starts the next season. I think he'd scored uh, in that first half of that first Premier League season something like six in 12. So he was scoring a goal every other game. Although Leeds were embarking upon a disastrous defence of their league title. I think they, they, by the end of the season, barely stayed up and, uh, and um, went an entire season without winning an away game. And people say that this season, Liverpool are one of the worst title defences in history. Well, they, they forget that both Leeds United, uh, in fact, Leeds United, Blackburn Rovers and Leicester all ended up um, for large spells of the season after they won their titles, uh, just above the relegation zone. But anyway, so, so halfway through that, that next season, that first Premier League season, uh, Manchester United are looking like they've... they've building a lot of momentum and they were a great chance to win the title. They've been, um, there's a strong challenge from Aston Villa, who had a good side at the time, and Norwich City, who were having a great uh, season. But Leeds United and Manchester United have always been historic rivals. There's a whole Yorkshire-Lancashire thing. There's a real real animosity. 
Now, can you imagine this now? Imagine a scenario in which uh, a chief executive of one massive, uh, you know, league champion side uh, rings the chief executive of their biggest rival and inquires about a player. They were inquiring about a left-back, Dennis Irwin, who had not long been at, uh, at the Manx at that time, making a good impression. I think Leeds needed a left-back and they wanted to chat about it. They were, they were rebuffed there, told that um, there was no interest in selling. But then the conversation turned to Cantona. They knew that the old-school kind of schoolmaster-type um, manager that Leeds had, Howard Wilkinson, had had a bit of a falling out with uh, Eric and maybe his, his kind of individualistic sort of temperamental side was becoming a bit much for this guy who probably wasn't used to being uh, given any sort of back chat. And um, but so they they asked the question, oh, would you be prepared to sell him? And Leeds madly said yes. So for £1.2 million, they sold their most... Uh, a talented and influential player to their biggest rivals. Over the next five years, Eric Cantona went on to be the difference between coming, you know, a close second and winning titles. They won the dub, the FA Cup and League Championship double twice in 1994 and 1996. Uh, they won the league all of those seasons apart from 1995 when he was banned for Kung Fu kicking a, a, a Palace fan. Leeds United didn't get anywhere close to challenging for any trophies during that time. They were a, a quite, you know, a dull side. They had a couple of decent individuals that, at spells, you know, Tony Yaboa went along and did well for a while. But in general, poor. They slipped back to mediocrity. Now, that is just a staggering decision. When you look back now and you think, can you imagine, like, Man City just getting on the phone to um, to Chelsea. So oh, we quite fancy um, taking Ben Chilwell off your hands. No, no, you're not having you're not having Ben uh, Chilwell. But but while you're there, would you flog us Aguero for next to nothing? Oh yeah, go on. And he's getting on our nerves a little bit. I mean, it's just crazy, and it has to go down as one of the worst. It is a real turning point um, decision in terms of shocking decision from Leeds United, but unbelievable uh, opportunism from uh, Duncan Edwards and Alex Ferguson because to, to to see the opportunity of taking that player and I would also argue that that was during a period of time when the level of creative flair required to make a difference to sides that were almost entirely lining up in these rigid 4-4-2s. Canton was really good at create, finding space in between these these rigid lines of like defence and midfield allowed him to have four or five years of up Unbelievable results, and he, would have been, he was the best player in the league pretty much all of that time. Most influential player in the league, most iconic player in the league. So he was also a, a kind of, you know, a, a, a marketing and merchandising success uh, for the club. At that same time, Liverpool, like I say, went into that early Premier League era as the top dogs in English football. Yes, all right, they weren't the reigning league champions, but they'd had, um, you know, like I'd said before, around thirty years of, of, of being right near the top of the tree. Uh, leading into that, and you know, worldwide fan base, and still a squad of magnificent, high-achieving footballers. And I think there's been there's been a bit of a rewriting of history where people like to look back and say, "Oh, yeah, but they were an aging squad." And they, you know, so Graham Souness basically went in, took a look at them, realized he wanted to professionalize them a bit more, um, make them kind of train harder, watch their diet. You know, a lot of them were still quite old school. 
used to kind of running the show themselves, getting away with um, with murder. So rather than kind of slowly introducing that, he shipped out. Now, one of the things you, you never do at any club that has had success is you don't throw out too much all at once. Even when, you know, Ferguson, he had a, a summer in the mid nineties when he had all, he, he knew he had all these kids coming through. So he had the, the balls to sell Mark Hughes, Andre Kinchelskis and Paul Lintz all in the same summer. But he still had at the club, um, you know, Steve Bruce and Gary Pallister and Peter Schmeichel. So, you know, people with real, Cantona, of course, himself, people with now, people, you know, experienced, proven winners. Souness went in and I made a, just, I scribbled down a list here of the players that he let go in the 91, 92, 92, 93, 93, 94 season, right? They include Peter Beardsley, Steve McMahon, Alan Hansen, all right, retired. He's broke the British transfer record on Dean Saunders and then sold him a year later. 2.9 million, by the way, that was. Ray Houghton, Glenn Hussain, Bruce Grobelar, Mike Martin, David Burrows, two more emerging talents who he inexplicably swapped in order to get Julian Dix off West Ham. <laughs> And he brought in such colossal giants as Istvan Cosma from Dunfermline. You heard of him, Matt? <laughs> no? Uh, Paul Stewart. I'm not going to say anything unkind about Paul Stewart because anyone who's followed football in the last year knows that he's he suffered a huge amount um, at the hands of that prolific paedophile, Barry Burnell. And uh, I was going to say I recommend the document. Well, yeah, no, I do recommend, but not in a not in a, you know, it's not a – light watch but the football's dark secret documentary that was on a couple of months ago three part on the bbc is well worth a watch and poor paul stewart suffered all sorts from but doesn't change the fact that he was you know not not ready to play for liverpool and had a shocking time bless him torben picnic out of his depth impulse by just because classic thing of oh we had a good european championship with denmark so never buy a player on the basis of four good games at an international tournament you know, they were do- still Liverpool were still doing that. Uh, you know, ten years later with El Hajduf and Salif Diaw. But anyway, Julian Dix, Nigel Clough, Neil Ruddock. Actually, I'll give Neil Ruddock a bit of a free pass because he was actually a better footballer than he's given credit for, and did quite well at Liverpool for quite a long time. But he was replacing proven, talented winners, experienced winners, with tough guys and players who were just simply not good enough. Also, at that same period of time. They allowed all the kind of commercial uh, advantage that they had to completely evaporate. So whoever was running the show, I don't know whether it was um, Martin Edwards or whatever at, at, um, at Old Trafford, but they saw that this new era of Premier League football was going to be much more based around sort of maximising the potential of your, your brand. So merchandising was going to you know, ab- completely take off and the opportunities to kind of sell uh, products and services and, you know, TV, whatever it is, whatever it is dig- digital stuff, I guess, further down the line, into markets that English football had not previously been able to reach. They were five, six, seven steps ahead of everyone else in that respect, but particularly Liverpool. And the reason that it's, you know, person that that they were ahead of Liverpool as well as everyone else is because Liverpool had the most to lose. And the, the reasons that I've I've looked at, you know, the, the reasons I've picked the biggest errors that I've picked here, we might not have time to cover them all today, um, 
is because of the impact that they had. It's not just a, oh, we signed this player and he was rubbish, you know. You can say, oh, Liverpool sold um, uh, Fernando Torres and tried to replace him uh, in a rush and bought Andy Carroll for 35 million. Yeah, colossal waste of money. But that's just a, a kind of one-off. But we're talking about decisions here and allowing momentum to shift that then you see the impact of that. That can result in a kind of, you know, a swing that takes 30 years to reverse. And it, it, it's it's actually quite terrifying thinking about that. And you look at it now, and there's a chance that the, the same um, uh, errors are being made on the flip side of the coin. So since Alex Ferguson retired, that the, the, the decision-making around Edward Wood and all of the you know, the, the the Glazer influence or whoever is pulling the strings at Old Trafford seems to be buy a big player, spend big, make a high-profile signing. So rather than kind of focusing on, you know, strategy and having a, a, a long-term plan, putting the manager in place and then fitting players around the way in which they want to play, in the eight years since Ferguson has retired, they've spent about a billion quid on mostly rubbish, even, you know, but they're all magnificent players. But just the absolute, I mean, so they spent more money on Alexis Sanchez's wages over like, I think, a two-year period, was he there, than Liverpool did on the transfer, the actual transfer fee of Mo Salah. I mean, that is outrageous. And Alexis Sanchez did nothing. I think he scored something like four goals and he was was earning about half a million quid a week. Falcao, Di Maria, Memphis Depay, um... Even now with Donny van der Beek, buy a player because you think he's a talent but have no idea what to do with him. Just wasting a guy. Uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger, Morgan Schneiderlin, just even Paul Bogba. You know, Paul Bogba was the world record. You know, all right, he's had a decent season. Really, for 90 million, they should have been getting a lot more out of him. And it reminds me quite a lot. It's it's a much bigger version of it, but it is quite a lot like the 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 policies that Liverpool were um, pursuing in the early 90s, thinking that, you know, buying uh, Julian Dix and Neil Ruddock and toughen them up a bit, or a little later down the line into the 90s, you know, going big on Stan Collymore, get a real talent in, break the British transfer record, that'll be the solution to the problems. Liverpool's Liverpool's um, um, attitude always going into the mid to late 90s was, we're one player away from winning the title. It was always the, the missing link. Paul Lintz was, uh, you know, the missing link. Stan Collymore was the missing link. Everyone was the missing link. They never were, of course. Liverpool had a very, very good side at that time. But you, it just goes to show when you let momentum slip, when you let, when, if you have a position of dominance and you let it slip, it is so difficult to get it back, no matter how close you think you are to it. You know, you look at. Um, you know, Solskjaer's got them to second place this season. And, you know, to to maybe many people, it might look like, well, OK, they're going to be right in the mix next season for the league time. And maybe they are. But history shows you, look at the amount of times that Liverpool were kind of in a in a situation like that over the last 30 years. And they were almost all full storms. And it didn't then mean that the next season they were going to go on to be. In fact, if, if anything, most of the time they peaked. And then they dropped off and their rivals re-strengthened. Uh, moving a little bit further down the food chain, Charlton Athletic, right? A proud historic football club in this country had uh, six consecutive seasons in the Premier League from 2000-2001 up until 2006-07, um, right? 
And all bar that last season, they were managed by Alan Kirbishley, who had been in charge for 15 years. He'd taken over the club when they still were nomads having to play because the Valley, their ground was condemned um, for safety reasons. And they were having to ground share with West Ham for a bit, Palace for a bit. He was initially a joint manager with a guy called Steve Grit. And he had slowly but surely taken hold of the club, got the job of his own on his own uh, um, without having to share, share with another guy. And built and built and built, and they were becoming a more and more competitive uh, team in the championship, got promoted to the Premier League for the first time, got relegated that first season, but went again. I think they got a massive points total in uh, 1999-2000, won the championship again, and then were not just a, a you know a, a just surviving um, Premier League club. For six years, they were a, a kind of solid mid-table, even high mid-table club, which for a club of Charlton's size is a massive achievement. But you had football fans, and I don't know, I, I struggle to really decide whether this is a phenomenon of the modern football fan who's just got access to too much in terms of phone-ins and, and now social media, which is, you know, even worse, um, where everyone's opinion matters and everyone, every fan thinks they've got the right to success. And that it's almost like if you go out for dinner and you don't like the food, you ask for your money back. You know, it's that kind of transactional mentality towards football. And it just doesn't work that way. And so despite the fact that Alan Kirbishley had almost single-handedly revived the club and got them to a, a spell of, uh, of uh, almost, almost unbeknown success and stability, there were rumblings there. There were people saying, oh, he's taking us as far as he can go. We need to move to, move to the next level. We need a, a fresh voice in that changing room, someone else to come along. So not entirely of his own accord. He steps down at the end of the 2005-06 season um, and then the next season, uh, they get through two, three managers that year and got relegated and they've never been back since. So it just goes to show, like, I, I'm trying to think of a modern day parallel. There's no one, no one has gone into a club and salvaged it and built it in the same way that, because very few managers go and do sort of 15 years. But you, I look at a club like Crystal Palace and I think, okay, the safe hand on the, on the, on the tiller, uh, Roy Hodgson is stepping down at the weekend. Um, a lot of fans would have said, okay, he's done a lovely job over the last three or four years, um, but we're unspectacular. We're dull to watch a lot of the time. We need someone to come in and freshen things up. Well, I've just got a horrible feeling that this time next year, those same Palace fans are going to be, because they've had a spell in the top division that they've never had before. You know, best part of 10 years they've been up. Which is, they had never spent more than one season um, in the Premier League era every time they've been promoted up until this spell. Um, yeah. I'd be a little bit worried about them sort of falling into that trap. So, yeah, so, you know, that is my rambling and scaled down version of just some top of the head, um, catastrophic strategic decisions uh, in football that have genuine long-term consequences uh, and can both uh, damage yourselves and benefit your rivals. Anything to add, Matt? Well, I could go back to the penalties, the the penalty, yeah. <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll keep that for next week. Trouble is, if you just if you if you if you just reduce it to a moment like that, you know, missing a penalty, what are the consequences of that? Say, for example, that Gareth Southgate had put away his penalty in England to beat in Germany. All right, that, that's a that's a big moment. That's an international tournament. But what impact does that have fifteen, twenty years down the line? I mean, I suppose you could argue that if if um, an error wasn't made that, you know, had it not happened, would have led a team to win an international tournament. They could have had hugely beneficial 
impact on that club's sort of domestic game or ability to nurture youngsters over a period of time, enthusiasm for football. But I think in this country, you're always going to have that. In fact, in many ways, people are more into it when England are shite. I think it's part of our national psyche. We feel almost reassured to see England. I think if England was, was suddenly world and European champions, people wouldn't know what to do with themselves. Well, firstly, a lot, 50% of people probably don't even give a shit these days anyway, because it seems to be a sort of detachment from the national team that possibly wasn't the case 30 years ago. Um, but also, uh, I think people would struggle how to deal with it because we're, as an, I think as a nation, we're, we're self-haters, aren't we? It's probably from the same mentality of a, you know, from a country that still supports and has so much love for lower league football. So come on, you O's. <laughs> Do you know who the O's are, Matt? Oh, is that Leighton Orient? Very good. You're learning something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's only taken. I mean, I say 12 episodes of half an hour. I mean, obviously, they're quite a lot longer than half an hour. So it's... Yeah, as they should be, man. <laughs> I know, if not longer. And, well, our listeners, you know, they're so keen that if you made one of these four hours long, you know, I'd still be getting messages from people saying, oh, where's the fifth hour? <laughs> what am I going to do with that that bit of the afternoon, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the, it's, it, it's it's like crystal meth, you know. We're just we're just dripping it there into that into the bloodstream, and people just need more and more of it. And before you know it, they're just sitting around in bedsits, looking like zombies, staring at each other. Going, Go back to episode one. <laughs> they were talking about fan culture. I love that one. Anyway, I've got to go. I've got to make a um, uh, video for Hamilton Waterways um, this afternoon. So, yeah. Waterway to have a good time. Um, so, uh, so on that yeah. bombshell, yeah, uh, it's time to say goodbye. Aha. Uh-huh.